we see a lot of perfectionism and anxiety in our class. And then our gifted kids, they just feel so greatly. And so they have this intensity about them. And you're like, well, why did you blow up here? This doesn't, that didn't make sense. But they just feel the world a little bit more than some of their non-gifted peers. And then uh, that asynchronous development, that's that's one that, that gets us where you see this crazy high level of intellectual development, right? Like there, you have a seven-year-old that's doing high school, maybe college level math, but then they're also throwing temper tantrums because they're also Mm -hmm. seven years old. Hello, and welcome to NCAGT's podcast, They'll Be Fine. I'm one of your hosts, Catherine Caldwell, and today you are in for a treat because joining us today is... Alexia Rose. Hello, I am also an educator looking to help support gifted learners in any way that I can because time and time again, we hear they'll be fine, they're smart, they're already ahead of the game when people refer to gifted learners. Because of this sad misconception, too many students fail to reach their potential because they do not receive appropriately challenging curriculum services. Our nation's education policies narrowly focus on the achievement gap for struggling learners, which is extremely problematic for the widening excellence gap faced by high ability students. Most regular classroom teachers do not receive adequate training to recognize and address the needs of high ability learners. This is even more pronounced for children of color, English language learners, and children from low-income backgrounds. In addition, these teachers are under a prohibitive amount of pressure to close the achievement gap of their struggling students. While this is an important measure, it shouldn't be at the expense of our gifted and talented students. Here at NCAGT, we believe that it's up to us as parents, educators, and stakeholders to provide the gifted community the support that they rightfully deserve. Listen to They'll Be Fine to learn more about what you can do to ensure that your gifted and talented scholars are provided the resources they need to thrive. We are here because the saying they'll be fine just isn't good enough. On today's episode, we will hear from Chris Rice. Chris Rice is the Advanced Learning Services Psychologist for the Wake County Public School System. Mr. Rice has served in this role for over two years. Prior to his position with the Wake County Public School System, he served as a building-level school psychologist in North Carolina and Delaware for five years primarily serving students at the middle and high school level. In addition to his professional role, Mr. Rice is a doctoral student at the University of Northern Colorado, where he is completing his PhD in special education with an emphasis on gifted education. Mr. Rice lives in Cary, North Carolina with his wife, Becca, and seven-year-old son, Camden. As a family, you can find them outside, either hiking, camping, biking, or at local sports fields. Besides work and school, Mr. Rice has a passion for coaching lacrosse and spending time with his family. Enjoy our discussion today about how complex giftedness truly is. Enjoy. The role you have in your county is so fascinating. And we think it is so valuable for the students and for the teachers and for everyone that you get to work with. Has it always been a position in your county? And do you know if it is used anywhere else in North Carolina? Yeah, so there's been a school psychologist 
there's been several school psychologists in the past that have been in our advanced learning services team or our AIG programming in Wake County. I think the role previously had been really like testing the students where maybe the COGAT in the Iowa or some group administered test wasn't like the best way to get at their giftedness, which is great because that is a necessary role and that's still part of my role. But I think that's where it ended in the past. When I came on board, my director, so we have two sides of the house, intervention and advanced learning services in one group, one department, which is really cool. And but she was like, yeah, testing is important, but I think we're kind of writing your job description as we go. So you get to figure out what's going to be the best way to use your skills and your experience. It's like, that's awesome because I like doing a little bit of everything. And so um, the role hasn't been like what it looks like now, which I know you're going to ask me like what a day looks like, and it's going to be almost impossible to really lay that out. But I don't know of many other places that have this particular role, right? One, Wake County is huge and there's just so many departments and just a need for support around the district with, I don't know, I think we're at 155,000 students or something in the district, 30,000 of them are gifted. And so, and a lot of, a lot of schools make over 190 some schools. So there's a piece that, you know, that consultative piece, that training piece um, really is needed. Um, yeah, but I've not known any other school psychologists to kind of have a role specific to this, unless they're in like a special school, like they're, they're a school base that's for gifted students only, that those, um, the specialized settings. But I don't know, at the district level, it'd be cool to, if there's anyone in North Carolina that hears this, that wants to, to connect and talk about connect. the role of school psychologists and gifted education, if they have that, that would be great. But fortunately, I also have a great team that I get to work with. So as we're making that job description come up together and finding all those other duties as assigned, right? Um, we all kind of work together and, and figure out where my place is in this. And it's really cool. I think it is so exciting that you get to kind of mold the job mm-hmm. as you're doing it. That is like what we give to the kids too, right? Giving them ownership mm-hmm. over what they're doing. And it just makes it so much more fun. I love it. Yeah. 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 I get bored easily and that might be the symptom of giftedness. Right. And I have a lot of interest that like I really dive into. And so um, one of my favorite things about being a school psychologist and having been in school-based buildings is really like the, the work connected to the bigger system, not just working one-on-one with a student and writing all the reports. I know paperwork is a lot of fun for a lot of people, but not so much for me. So I really liked taking my experiences and knowledge and just my love of working with people and put it into this role and getting to dabble in all the things that have historically interested me because just have a ton of interests and I don't like focusing on one thing at a time. It just doesn't work out. And I know a lot of our kids can relate to that and probably everyone can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I feel like we're always talking in my school about how we just wish we had more support for our students, like mental health and more like guidance counselors. We were just talking earlier about like the ratio for how many kids per guidance counselor is insane. Do you feel like things are getting better? Like we're getting more support, like some more supportive roles like that? Or do you think, no, there's still like a whole, like we have a lot more work to do before we get to where is a good place? Yeah. I don't want to ever say that the pandemic has been a good thing, right? But I do think there has been an increased uh, increased level of awareness of student behavioral health. So that would include social emotional learning, mental health, behavioral challenges, I really think there has been more conversation around that and willingness to listen on, I don't want to make this a political topic, but it is kind of a political topic when we talk about resources in schools, but there has been more of a willingness to listen on both sides of the aisles of, hey, maybe this is something we should come together and figure out. And so I can't say it's better everywhere in the country. I will say in North Carolina, there has been talks in in government about how do we fund behavioral health positions like 
school psychologists. I'm biased towards those folks. I think they're a great group of people and we need more of them. The <laughs> same with counselors and social workers and mental health clinicians in the school. There's actually a house bill going through or talking about going through right now that that is geared towards like funding for school psychologists and finding new positions because we're as a state just woefully understaffed, right? There's just not enough school psychologists to go around. And again, can be say, said the same thing for other mental health and behavioral health positions too. So I think we're getting there. I think that at least the conversations are happening and we're recognizing the importance because yeah, it's one thing from the pandemic is that we're seeing some different difficulties in our schools, but some things that have existed just maybe not been paid attention to in the past. So I also think people need to see the benefits, the long-term benefits of investing in these types of roles and how, yes, it's not just helping right now. These are issues that we're seeing now that could have been maybe avoided or I don't know. I just feel like there's so many trickle down effects of getting Mm -hmm. our young people the help that they need now instead of a decade later. Yeah, absolutely. And having those positions in in school, those school-based positions is great because then we can start breaking down some of the stigmas that have existed, the unwillingness to talk about it from the student level, right? Like scared to say, oh man, this is how I'm feeling. And because what if my peers judge me or what if my teachers judge me or parents, whatever it might be, I think we can just have much more honest conversations because just think about how long a student spends in school, right? In their life, like yeah. they are there a lot. And yeah. so we really need to leverage that, that setting to be able to support them as best we can. And also just give support to our staff too, because it's scary talking about mental health or behavioral health and social emotional well-being. If you feel like you've not been trained and you feel like you're not an expert or have the vocabulary to talk about, it's like, what if you say something wrong? What if you, yeah. you know, try to touch this topic and it goes horribly sideways mm-hmm. and reality, just having some base level of, of vocabulary there and like willingness to talk about it in the class can do a lot of good and connect students to resources that they might not have otherwise known about and families to resources that they might not have known about. And then working that into scheduling too, I think like practically, like I feel like Mm -hmm. so many teachers have so many things they're trying to teach and wanting to know how they know how important this is, but maybe, okay, I could just hear other people that I work with being like, well, when am I supposed to do that? Like, Mm -hmm. when are we supposed to have those conversations? And I think some schools are working towards, you know, scheduling that time in training their teachers, but it's definitely, I feel like there's always, we can always do better. For sure. For sure. And yeah, yeah. Teachers have just a few things on their plates at a time, right? Just, just a little bit, you know, but they do like adding more stuff for sure. Uh, No, one thing I talk to my teachers about and I have, whether it's been in this gifted ed role or when I was in a school-based position, it's let's not view this as something more or something additional to the plate. Like how can you structure your classroom? And I guess we're jumping ahead into strategies, but we'll get back to this. Um, But how can you structure your classroom environment from the get-go that supports that work, right? Like when you think about like castle competencies, like social emotional learning, where we're talking about like self-awareness and management and those healthy relationships and all these skills, like you could build that into the expectations in your classroom. And I've seen really good models of that in a middle school. I worked up in Delaware for, I worked there for four years. You couldn't go many places in that building without recognizing the, what we valued in the school, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. the PBIS lens, those core values, we, ours were care, kindness, and respect us plastered everywhere. <laughs> like every kid could tell you that, but then also seeing just like what that looks like like practically like being able to manage your emotions and being responsible, making responsible decisions in the school day. It was just really, it was embedded in pretty much everything that we did. So there's models out there. It's just, but yeah, if you don't know, you don't know if it's not valued yet, then how can you, because you got to invest some time into establishing those systems up front, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that takes time and it takes courage and it takes 
that willingness to say, yeah, this is something that we're going to value along with all these other things that we have to do per state legislation, all the test scores and the curriculum, the pacing and all that. But yeah, you do have to be willing to invest some of that time. And it comes from a lot of different places. Yeah. So looking at your past experiences, it sounds like you've done a whole lot of things before education, but what did bring you into this world of education? Yeah, I had no desire when I went to college to go into education. I know I wanted to work with kids because I was always like, I was just good working with kids, whether it was like being a tutor at, as a high school student with working with elementary students or through sports. Cause I even in high school, I would coach some youth sports any chance I got. I realized like, oh, I have this, this ability to just reach kids in general. And so I was like, oh, you know what I'm going to be? I'm going to be a lawyer. That This is my first thought was I'm going to be a lawyer that works with child custody issues or just specifically with children's issues. Didn't want to do that when I got to college. So then I was going to be a doctor, so a pediatrician. Then I had my first four-hour lecture followed by three labs in a week. And I was like, no, can't do that. That's too much time. I like college. I like my life. I don't want to invest all of that time in there. Business was someone throwing in there. And then in my junior year, I took a class with the director of school psychology at Syracuse and it changed my life. It was a behavioral disorders in children and adolescents. And it was just an incredible class. And that introduced me to the field of school psychology, which is crazy that as a junior in college, so halfway through my junior year in college is when I found out school psychology was even a field. And I was a psych major. We didn't talk about it. Up to wow. that point, like I had no clue this was a thing that you could go into the class or into the schools and work as a school psychologist and what they did. And I was able to, so I, I joined a research team with that professor and worked in the Syracuse City School District doing some intervention work. And I was like, this is crazy how just you could invest, I want to say little time, because obviously when you work with students in schools, there's it's a, a massive investment, but like with intervention, you could do such some such small things that were evidence-based that could make such a big difference, right? There's these high yield strategies that could change the trajectory of a student's life. And I was like, I'm hooked. And so that's when I went to grad school for school psychology. And yeah, at first I wasn't so sure I loved it. When I did my practicum, it was really stressful, which I found out working in schools for full time is pretty stressful. So I took a little, so I took a little break and did a couple other things, but everything that I did, every other role outside of education in that little break, brought me back to the fact that I wanted to work with students and that I think my passion and my true skill set was being in the schools or somehow related to the schools. So I went back and finished up my my degrees, did my internship and started working in the schools as a full-time psycholo- school psychologist. And, um, you know, one thing I realized that I loved doing was being an advocate and a voice for students and families that didn't quite know how to navigate the system, especially when we talk about students with disabilities working with families that for the first time here and that they're, Hey, your student has autism, your student has a learning disability, and they're going to need these special services and supports. And now they're going to be in this thing called special education, or your student has these mental health challenges or behavioral challenges. And these are these intensive supports required to make them successful or help them be successful in school and life. I think that was just, I just love doing that and being able to help those families and students find their voice and get the services and supports they needed. So that way they could go through school, go through their school years, which they're going to spend a good chunk doing and be successful and find their place. And then outside of that, going into the real world, whatever that is, right? I don't know if I, I still don't know what the real world is, but but then they had that chance at a productive future, whatever that looked like, and had some skills that maybe they might not have if they didn't get the supports they needed. So I just, I just love that. And once I got back into that full-time role in schools, like, yeah, this is where I need to be. And I also knew I couldn't be a teacher because I don't like waiting to use the restroom or not eating lunch or having all, you know, I, I like being able yes. to bounce around the building and <laughs> being able to not be confined to one room all day. Right. And so yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah. that's out. So 
if we're gonna work with students, it's gotta be you probably in a support role. And so school psychology was that for me. So when you are talking to these people about, you're talking about finding them and what are the next steps? When you're talking mm -hmm. to the average person about your life work now, and when you're trying to help them understand what it means to be gifted or to be labeled as gifted or even identified, yeah. what do you say? What do you do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was a, it was a, big, it was a weird, weird jump. Not a weird jump. It actually made a lot more sense of a jump uh, going from you know the special education only world to gifted ed because there's the language is pretty similar as far as it's a differentiated service. It's a need for these students that is beyond the core. But when I talk about this role, you know, I, I do tell them that advocating for these students that need something else, that they're, you know, education historically has been set and the middle is going to get this. And when these students struggle, we're going to give them these supports and services to bring them up to the middle, to the average, right? So that they can access the curriculum. Great. That is important. But what about those students that are in, that are so intellectually or academically gifted that they're going into kindergarten and reading chapter books. Do we expect them to sit there and learn about Annie Apple and Mr. E from Letterland and they're learning sounds, but like I can read this 300 page book and understand it. Like, what are we doing for those students? What, how can we structure uh, differentiated services for them? Um, and so, so that link between the special ed world and the gifted world really is uh, pretty strong. And then that language, I already had that language there. So it's like, I'm just doing that same thing, but for students that need something above and beyond core. And that is something that is really important for these students. We don't want them just sitting in a classroom just to sit there and to be around the same age peers, just because that's what the model of education has been, right? Six-year-olds need to be a six-year-old, seven-year-olds need to be the seven-year-olds. Developmentally, that might be, a, that could be true, right? But how do we support those kids when they show that need? And I think you said something about the labels and whatnot. And so it's like, well, why is that label important? Same, it's the same argument, right, for special education. That label might not be important if we're really looking at the student as a whole child and saying, okay, well, we recognize these needs and these strengths and these areas of deficits, right? And we're just going to provide them what they need right off the get-go without any paperwork. That would be cool. <laughs> that would be really cool. But labels do help, right? Give us language for what a student truly needs and how to support them the best, right? So saying that a student has a learning disability in reading comprehension says, okay, well, they are going to probably struggle with reading comprehension. And I put these specific strategies in place. And now the parent and the student and the teacher and the staff now know how to support that student. Well, when a student is academically gifted or intellectually gifted, that puts some language into place of how we can best support them. And then looking at their data and saying, okay, is it in more reading related skills, more math related skills, that verbal reasoning, quantitative reasoning, what does that look like? And that gives us language to be able to support that student. So while labels, you could argue, aren't that important, I would argue it gives us language and words to put to the student need and it helps educators and families be able to really guide those supports and services as we go. I love that explanation because I feel like we don't like to label things, but you do have to have some, you have mm -hmm. to have a word to call it and where everyone understands what we're talking about. So I like the way that you explain that. Um, so now when we come to like NCAGT, if you were talking to someone who's maybe not living and breathing in the world of education, how would you explain to them what NCAGT is and maybe what the significance of the organization is? Yeah, I am a sucker for a good state organization that provides resources for families and professionals and students. And so when I started getting involved with NCAGT, I just absolutely adored it. One, because it helped me make connections, being relatively new to the gifted space. This is only 
two and a half years into specifically working with gifted student or gifted populations, if you will. But NCHET is a, an organization that has so much potential to provide incredible resources for families, for teachers, for students, staff, all about how to support gifted learners, right? And whether it be through the conference, which is was electric. This was my first in-person conference and it was just awesome just being around awesome. everyone. It was so cool. Uh, it talked about it probably, actually, I'm still talking about it and people are probably <laughs> tired of hearing about it. But yeah, so the conference is a great resource, but then also having our Thoughtful Thursdays and PLCs and having parents be able to connect with each other and talk about resources and strategies, which is going to get keep rolling right in the future. Same for our, our teachers and other staff members throughout the state that want to know more about gifted education from the educator perspective. We're going to have PLCs and actually I think there's one coming up for twice exceptional learners that I'm supposed to be leading. So that will be coming around the corner. I have to get that out there, <laughs> but it's just a resource for folks to learn about how to support gifted students. And, and on top of that too, it provides a voice for gifted learners and gifted educators and gifted families when it comes to conversations, say like at the legislative level, right? That we are gonna talk to our legislators and to anyone who will listen about why it's important to invest in and fund gifted education and what resources are out there. So yeah, so good resource bank, good for connections, yeah. Hopefully that answered all that. I don't know. There's just so much it was great potential for NCAGT. And I think it's just grown and people that are getting involved with it. It's, there are some awesome voices and advocates for the state, for our gifted learners in the state. So um, I think the conference too, like that, there were so many like times where I was like, mm-hmm. man, I wish so many people from my school could have come to this. Like even people mm-hmm. who aren't gifted educators, there were so many things that I got from that conference that I came back and was just telling my team about. I'm like, this is going to help all of our kids, like not yes. just our gifted kids. Yes. I think that's the thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we've lose sight of that. And you said that best, like some of these strategies are going to help all of our kids. Yes. Like all of our kids could benefit from advanced learning strategies. Right. Um, you know, it's not, not just our gifted kids or profoundly gifted kids that need a challenge. Like, you know, all of our students deserve access to rigorous and quality education and some of the strategies we use for gifted ed is like, that's great for our classroom teachers. If they just could get a hold of it, they could just reach so many of their students in their classroom, regardless of, again, regardless of that label, whether it's described or not. Ah, yeah. <laughs> so what does a day in the life of Chris Rice, the school psychologist look like? <laughs> My official title is advanced learning services psychologist in the intervention and advanced learning services department in Wake County public schools. So we have two sides of the house where we support interventions of supplemental and intensive interventions for students, for behaviors, academics, what have you. And then we have the advanced learning side of the house, which is my primary role, which supports gifted education in the districts. So my role or my day might be, I might be in a school testing a student that's twice exceptional or a multi-language learner. I also might be in an all-day training that I'm providing for our 160 plus AIG teachers. I might might be consulting in the classroom, like going to a school and working with teachers about how to support students that are showing some unique needs, whether it be behavioral, academic, social, emotional. Um, it could be that I'm writing, helping write policy in our district too. And then I also have that side of the intervention piece where I support our intervention coordinating teachers, where if there's some a student struggling with behavioral health, helping with intervention plans in that situation or working with other stakeholders in our district where we're talking about behavioral health or academics, like the curriculum and bringing both the intervention side, but also the AIG side of things, the AIG voice to the table too, because sometimes that's 
and this is every district, is, is sometimes we don't think about the needs of our gifted learners when we're talking about behavioral health or curriculum or what have you. So trying to bring the voice of AIG into those meetings as well with some of our key stakeholders and decision makers. So it's, um, yeah, it's, each day is different. That's why I love the job is because I'm, I'm constantly doing something different. So I had office hours last week where we talked about the needs of twice exceptional learners and how to identify them. That was a whole it's day great that you could, Sorry, I was going to say, it's great that you get to work with teachers. I was just mm-hmm. thinking like, I feel like that's something I would love more support on is, you know, social emotional learning and mm-hmm. our counselors and psychologists are, they're, their schedules are packed with just student, like working with students. And I just feel like we, like I was telling her, I was like, I don't even know. Sometimes the, there's a disconnect between who the school psychologist even is, because maybe sometimes like they're always with kids or we don't ever get to work with them. And there's not that connection to where we can get the support, which then might like, might be less kids now that they need to see because maybe we're, I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like there's, I love that you get to work directly with teachers and that they're getting that support. And I think that's something we need more of. Yeah. And that's part of the, um, so the NASP is National Association for School Psychologists. It's our governing, not a governing body, but our national organization, NAGC is for gifted ed. But in our, in the practice model for school psychologists, like that consultative role, uh, that piece being with teachers and talking to staff members and families and providing like that psychoeducation for them. That's one of our competencies that we learn in grad school. And it's not just testing. It's not just paperwork. It's not just meetings, but that is what we do a lot of, right? You have these mysterious unicorn psychologists floating around the building. They are there, I promise, and they're doing great work. It's just, yeah, it's hard when you have that caseload that focuses. It is a lot of testing because that testing takes a long time. And those 30 to 40 page psychoeducational reports, <laughs> they're yeah. all fun to read. It's a lot to put together. Yeah, no, I'm super excited because that's one of my favorite things is being able to actually like work with students in classrooms, not in the testing space, but then also working with teachers and providing that support. And so this role is awesome. I also get to work with our school psych department, which is ironic. I'm not actually part of the school psych department, so I don't fall under like the school psychology department in Wake County, but I am actually working with them too about what my role looks like and then how school psychologists can support gifted learners in the schools too, because that's something that, that's something I had to learn myself. Like when I started this role, I had to, I did a months of researching of like, Hey, I, I need to figure out this gifted thing. And so, you know, I, I saw that was a space that like, Hey, I speak the same language as these school psychologists. Let's figure out how they can support yeah. in the buildings. There's one of me for 190 some odd schools. <laughs> so, Yes, definitely helping everyone. So what do you think is the most common social and emotional struggles for gifted students? Yeah. Um, so I always make this disclaimer whenever I do anything social, emotional related or behavioral health related is that every kid is a unique kid, right? They bring their own perspectives and their own experiences. And so it's, you know, some folks want to say like, okay, well, what are my gifted uh, kids are going to, what are they going to experience, right? What are my gifted students going to struggle with? And so they might do X, Y, Z, right? But because with our gifted students, there's not necessarily, they're not any more likely to have these behavioral health or mental health challenges than non-gifted peers. But what we are seeing a lot of and what some of the research pans out when they talk about social emotional needs of gifted learners centers on like perfectionism, anxiety, emotional intensity, and then asynchronous development piece, which I know has been talked about, like these things have been talked about on the podcast throughout the lifespan of the podcast, but, and then also the social development and peer relationships go in there too. So, yeah, so those are some of the big things that we see in the research, but then also in practice too, what are some of our teachers bring to my departments, like 
can we have support? Like we see a lot of perfectionism and anxiety in our class. And then our gifted kids, they just feel so greatly. And so they have this intensity about them. And you're like, well, why did you blow up here? This doesn't, that didn't make sense. But they just feel the world a little bit more than some of their non-gifted peers. And then uh, that asynchronous development, that's that's one that, that gets us where you see this crazy high level of intellectual development, right? Like there, you have a seven-year-old that's doing high school, maybe college level math, but then they're also throwing temper tantrums because they're also mm-hmm. seven years old. Yes. Having a seven-year-old, yes. as my, for my, yeah, my kid's seven years old, so I, I get that, but it's hard to reconcile some of that asynchronous development. So we see a nice little mix of that. Yeah. You, you mentioned intensity. I was mm-hmm. reading on the Davidson Institute mm-hmm. about intensity and how it's great sometimes mm-hmm. and then how sometimes it can be like a difficult thing for students when everything is so intense. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, you want them to be intense in, in some some aspects, right? But then it's like maybe going on a 15-minute spiel about why the there's these injustices in the world because your friend didn't get extra computer time. That might not be the space, right? <laughs> yeah, we're talking about like poverty and world hunger and war. Yeah, those are things like, oh, go for it. But then some of those other yeah. things like, oh, I don't know how to handle this right now. Yeah, <laughs> so, let's just table this for right now. <laughs> it's fun though. It, it, but there are strategies, right? Like with all social, emotional or behavioral health related concerns in the classroom, like there are strategies that help support that, right? Um that's what we were going to talk about next is what strategies can we use to, to help these kiddos? Yeah. I don't, and I can go like one by one, like perfectionism, intensity, asynchronous development. If that's cool with you all just to keep my brain straight. Right. Cause sometimes yeah. I need help with that. Yeah. So one of those things that I think we get worried about a lot with our gifted students is perfectionism in the classroom and the research a mixed bag here of do gifted students have a higher proclivity to perfectionism or perfectionist traits. We not necessarily, right? But we can see it in the environments that we set up for our gifted kids because we just expect so much of them, right? We think about it's like, okay, well, they have the this giftedness here, so they should be good at everything, which we know is a myth. But then that can create an environment that really could lead to some anxiety and, and some unhealthy perfectionism, right? Where that achievement or what they do really becomes their identity, right? Not rather than just something that they're good at. So um, when I talk to my teachers about that. It's how do you set up, and this is actually good for a lot of strategies, but or for a lot of concerns, how do you set up your classroom environment at the beginning of the year to highlight what's important to you, right? Mm-hmm. So when I go into your classroom as a student, is can I see an emphasis on achievement, right? On great grades, on A's and B or A's. We don't definitely don't want B's. B's are bad, right? B means bad, I think. Uh, <laughs> or even standards-based grading, we want threes and fours, mostly fours. But what does that environment say to me? Can I look at the room and see you value effort, right? Or you value creative problem solving or the process to get to that work sample, whatever that might be. Can I see that in your physical environment and the way you also carry yourself as the teacher in the classroom? Is the classroom a place where creative risks or intellectual risks can take place? Because we know sometimes with perfectionism, our students don't like being wrong. I don't like being wrong, truth be told. I don't like an egg on my face when I'm trying something new. But if I'm in an environment, if I'm in a classroom that values the process and the thinking behind the work, even if it turns out that it didn't work out so well, then I'm going to take more risks, right? I'm going to be more willing to fail and or face that productive struggle 
And that is so critical for our gifted students, right? Because they have so much great stuff in their brain. Not all of it's going to turn out perfectly, right? It's not going to be a work. It's not going to be the best thing you've ever seen. And that's okay if we allow for that, right? If we allow for that space and we as educators say, it's okay to do that, right? Because some of the best minds in the world, when you look at like Google and other like big tech companies, like they might have failure Friday, right? We're putting in time where a project might not actually work, but it's like your passion and you just want to see what you can do with it, even if it goes nowhere. We should let our kids do that, especially our gifted students. You might, they might solve world hunger at that point. If you just give them that chance to potentially fail and be okay with that and not have it turn into the space where it's creating anxiety. We have so many kids at our school that the returning kids, you can see how they are so ready to mm. have a marvelous mistake or ready to show something that they figured out. And mm. then when we have some of our new students, it takes a little bit of training time to transition their thinking from not knowing things is the opportunity. This is incredible. This is what we want for you. If you knew everything, you know, what am I doing here? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it's just so much fun once they unlock that idea that not knowing is the world opening up for you. And like expecting that bit of failure, like making it like an expectation and making it like not a surprise, like saying, oh, there's something. What can we learn from that? How is that going to help us moving forward? I think that's so powerful. Absolutely. When you know everything, you can't learn anything, right? And the whole point of school and life, I think, is to be a lifelong learner. I, right. I, I always, that's probably why I've never left school. <laughs> so <laughs> I joke, I think I'm in like the 25th grade. I'm not even sure how many yeah. years I've been in school at this point, but yeah. yeah, learning is fun and learning is growth and being able to challenge yourself intellectually. It's just, shouldn't that be school? That's my thought, but Definitely. I don't know, maybe sometimes I'm more of an idealist, than, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but also like when we think about what the teachers and, or the educators are doing in the room, and this also can go to home is are we also mirroring that expectation, right? Like how many adults don't want to say to kids, I don't know the answer to that. I'll get back to you. Or I don't know, but I bet you we have resources to figure this out. Can we figure this out together? I'm a real big proponent of mirroring those expectations of being a lifelong learner and being okay with not knowing something because it would be impossible to know everything. I don't think, I just think your brain would explode if you tried to, if you could know everything, right? You might know a lot of things, but there's probably a limit somewhere in there. (laughs) I'm sure the neuroscience has a lot to say about that, right? Yeah, so there's just, yeah, I think it's just the way we set up our rooms in the school is just so critical and being in the year and having those expectations and letting students know that ahead of time. And as you're developing those, creating community norms that um, the students have some say in, right? There's some things that we, as educators, there's just, you have to have certain norms, like you can't punch people in the face. That's a good community norm that I'm not going to let you debate, right? As an adult, Mm -hmm. we're not debating this, but just having community norms around what learning looks like in that room. And and I think in our gifted programming, what is the point of the gifted programming, right? What do kids want out of that? And so is there some student input and feedback that we could have in that process for our learners? Is it about just doing more faster or is it about growing as learners and yeah, that might be you're doing more work than, or quicker work, right? Than what some of your non-gifted peers are doing, but it might not look like that too. It might not, because that might not be meaningful for all of your students. So I think this is so important for teachers to hear all of this. Cause I'm just thinking, I don't know. I feel like we like to, I always go back to practice 
practically. I'm thinking we like to have everything established before the kids come in the room or whatever and have everything planned out, like how we're going to run things. And I just feel if if people get set into that, instead of thinking about what you're talking about, like setting up these norms with their kids. And I've always heard, I heard from a colleague a long time ago about how you need to build your classroom with your kids, like making everything in your classroom reflect your kids and not you. This isn't your room. It's like their room, but how that's going to help you in the long run. That's going to help you further on in the year, avoid issues you may have had because you guys have built this all together. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you have to students or not, that's just good. I think educational advice. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so those, those are some important things. I think too, like when we think about intensity for our gifted students around emotions, I think we need to do a better job as adults, helping our students, helping our children develop a good language around their emotions, right? And being willing to talk about it. So we call that like emotional literacy or emotional vocabulary, being able to get past the happies, mads and glads and sads, right? But really being able to put language to what we're feeling, And we have to be able to value that as well, right? So if my son comes to me and he is just distraught over something, it could be something that's silly. It could be something that is an actual injustice in the world. Am I, what am I doing as the adult in that situation? If I don't give value to his experience, I don't honor his experience and his emotions. Because those are his very real emotions, whether I think that the trigger of it was silly those are very real emotions. And so in our classrooms or at home, building that emotional vocabulary or that emotional literacy between adult and student or adult and child, right? And then honoring that space where that student comes into says, hey, I am not in a good spot. We need to be able, be okay with talking about that out loud and naming our feelings and being able to work through that. And so sometimes that's uncomfortable and sometimes that takes time away from the lesson plan. But if you don't address that, it's going to take a lot more time away from the lesson plan or a lot more time away from family time. If it's at home, if we can't address it in the moment and be willing to talk through it and use it as a learning opportunity for our students, again, we as adults can mirror that language and talk about our own feelings. Like some things like we probably need to leave uh, off the table. We probably shouldn't talk to our students about and keep those boundaries. But is it that or uh, is it that inappropriate to say, hey, uh, Mr. Rice is coming in today and I'm not feeling it. I am really frustrated by what just happened last period. I think that's okay to talk about because I have very real feelings and I'm an adult and I'm not only that, I'm a person and person people have emotions and feelings and we need to be willing to explore those and talk about those. And so with that intensity piece, we can't let the emotions go into a place that's like unsafe, right? Or makes for a really untenable environment in the classroom. But we definitely need to be able to talk about those and have open lines of communication and model as adults what that could look like for our students. Because I think that's very powerful when, when students can see adults as, oh, they're vulnerable to this stuff too. It's like, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that helps with just the classroom and helps with the culture of the room. That makes me think of one of my friends. She has been talking to her kids about like a mood thermometer. I think that's what she called it. Mm-hmm. And it was just talking about different emotions and what level you get to. And when you get to a point up here where it's, I, there's nothing you can do about it. I shouldn't be talking to you right now because I'm just at this point or whatever. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about how her class, like some, like she's got a, she got a bunch this year and how she got really frustrated at one point and she looked at her class and she said, I'm at an eight right now and had to like, she literally, she, I sat there and I just breathed for a minute and they just watched her bring herself basically back down. Cause we are, we're humans. Like 
we we get overwhelmed and we have all these emotions. And I feel like I look back at like my beginning teacher years, how I just thought I was supposed to bottle all that up and not take the time to be a human in front of them. And I feel like now I can. It's just, I think it's so helpful for them to see you, like you said, like model in front of them and that helps them do it themselves. Cause we're all going to feel all these things. Like we might as well work through them together mm-hmm. and it just helps you in the long run. Yeah. How powerful is that to be able to sit with your class and do a mindfulness moment and show them it's like, Hey, we're going to do some deep breathing or some grounding activities right now. And yes, I know this lesson was really important because I came up with this lesson and I put a lot of time into it and yeah, we're going to, we're going to have to get tested on this down the road. But right now it's more important to take care of our mental status or our mental space and let's clear the air and let's get back on track. Let's come to baseline. And so then we can actually work. That's, it's really powerful to be able to do that with their students. Yeah. From both a teacher perspective and then from that parent perspective too. So I'm sitting here thinking about how for some people, this could just be like wildly uncomfortable. Do you have any resources or websites for those people that they could like maybe read through to just build their tool belt a little bit? So they can feel better going into it. Yeah. So non-gifted specific resources. I love Castle, castle.org, C-A-S-E-L.org. That is for, that's like a staple of social emotional learning. Like they come up with the five Castle competencies and there's a lot of great resources for educators on what that looks like, how to integrate some of that stuff into your lesson planning and just give you some language and vocabulary around that. Actually, the NCDPI website, they have an actual section for social emotional learning too. And so they have a lot of great resources on DPI, even like a planning document of how it fits within different grades and curriculum. So how does it fit in math and ELA and art? And so that's a really good resource too. For the gifted space, Davidson Institute has a lot of great social emotional resources as well as ng.org, which is supporting the emotional needs of the gifted. It's another great organization that has resources around what gifted students might be experiencing emotionally and also even adult resources so about gifted adults, which is sometimes left out. And then National Association for Gifted Children, NAGC. So I'm just like, just vomiting these resources right now, <laughs> NAGC.org. They also have spaces for the social emotional aspect or social emotional piece for gifted students as well. Thank you. I'll be sure to add those in the show notes. Anyone that's listening and would like to check those out. Yes. So you've kind of, I feel like we've talked through this, but I wanted to make sure I said it in case we, you had anything else to add to it. But how does giftedness affect emotional development? Yeah. And that is a fun topic because there's a camp that says that giftedness is a protective factor, right? It helps with the emotional development and it can really help students deal with some of the unpleasantries of life, right? And then some, there's a camp that says that they have these really intense needs and it's gonna, and they're a little bit more susceptible to maladjustment, if you will, around the emotional piece, but it can certainly impact it, and it, it, but it depends on the student's characteristics, their type of giftedness, the level of giftedness, as well as the educational fit. Because like I said before, our gifted students, they are students first and they're gonna have their unique needs, but what they might experience as being gifted, you might see that there, let's start over. Sorry, I added where I was going. And then I finally got to the point where my brain just put it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's the 
weekend. Yeah. It's hard sometimes. Yeah, we're actually, yeah, we're on vacation too. So it's like, we're in oh, Hillhead right now. I'm like, oh my goodness, my brain is really starting to go. It's totally fine. <laughs> Let's do that over. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So development, when we think about the emotional development of our gifted students, what does that look like? There is a camp that says that giftedness is, provides for protective factors, right? Like that it helps with resiliency. And that is true, right? Because our students are very aware. They are, they understand what's going on around them and that can certainly support them in their emotional development. But there are also camps that say, okay, but there's these certain unique needs that our gifted learners have, especially when we talk about the development. And I think really two of the main terms that we think about when we associate giftedness and emotional development together, it's going to be that intensity and and asynchrony. So that asynchronous development really with that asynchronous development, I think this is a piece that we need to understand a little bit more because I see this in the schools and I see this when I'm talking to parents about what are some best fits for their students. And it's, oh yeah, no, we get that they're doing this college level algebra, right? As a seven-year-old, but they just seem so immature because X, Y, Z, because they're rolling on the floor with these tantrums or physically they, they can't even tie their shoes yet. So how could they possibly, how could we accelerate them to the grades? And we realize, and we have to recognize that not everything is going to develop evenly with our gifted students, especially when we're talking about such high levels of intellectual ability being developed so early. It's like we, we tend to want to place so, a higher expectation on them, if you will, for their behavior and their emotions. But we got to remember they are chronologically and developmentally this age, right? What six or seven-year-old are we not going to expect to have a tantrum at some point or not get into a spat with their peers at some point or talk back to this? Oh, let's go to teenagers too, right? We have these kids like when they get into late elementary, into middle school or high school, that is an age all of itself, right? That we have all sorts of concerns and issues with these students. <laughs> They're going to talk back to you. They're going to check out from time to time. They're going to not, they're, emotions and their behavior are not going to reflect the maturity that we see in their intellectual abilities and their academic abilities. And I think that's problematic in our schools at home because we just don't give the kids the benefit of the doubt when they're being kids, when they're showing what should be expected because we expect so much more of them. And then it's okay if they're the seven-year-old having that tantrum or that 13-year-old talking back to you, are they truly gifted? Should they be in gifted programming? If they're having a rough day, should I send them to the gifted class? Because the, do they deserve it? Do they deserve that break from the class? Oh, we're not Disney World. We're a differentiated service. That's yeah. what it'd be. So that that's problematic on its own. But then that intensity too, and it can be shocking for some folks that when they see that emotional intensity, it's like, why are they so worked up right now? Why is this such a big deal? And it's because they just feel that so much more differently than their non-gifted peers. They see that world and it's just going hundred miles an hour and it's just so ramped up and it's so vibrant and they're making all these connections to the injustices that they see in the world, whether we think they're real or not, no matter how we perceive those injustices. And that gets to a space where, you know, sometimes we might not honor that experience and we might take away services or we might change services because of that intensity, as opposed to looking at it like, okay, that is a trait of giftedness. And that's a characteristic of that emotional development for gifted students. How do we support that? And so we might start judging that we might, um, there might be some pretty harsh outcomes with that. Right. And it might be, it might turn out to be like, again, they don't go to the, if they're identified, they might not go to that 
pull-out support group or however the gifted services are laid out for their school. It might be that we say, no, nah, they can't go today because they're having a rough day. Or it might be that when you're looking at data for that student to identify them, they might not be identified because how can that kid be gifted when they are blowing up all over the place over little things? Mm-hmm. Not saying that we, that that's acceptable to blow up and have super big outbursts in the classroom and make it potentially an unsafe or awkward position, but like we need to at least support that and not discount or not discredit the gifted part of that student. Um, but then the fun thing with gifted students is that they also might not experience any of those things. They, you might not see it at that level because all of our yeah. gifted students are that. They're students and they have their own needs and their own characteristics. And it's fun. It's difficult. It's But it's worth going student by student and need by need to see how we can support them through that development. Man, when you said like they've had a rough day, maybe they don't go. Just like remembering that this is an, a service to the students. Like, I feel like I have heard so many people say, like, they don't deserve to go to that Mm -hmm. whole lot. They don't deserve to go to that group. And I think that just goes to show, like, so many people just don't understand, I think, giftedness and how it's a need that these kids have and they need to get what they deserve. Just just like you wouldn't let a student go to their reading intervention group because they're struggling with reading. I don't know. I just feel like that's a mental shift that people need to make thinking about gifted giftedness in general yeah absolutely especially we're one of the few states with a gifted mandate and funding and like some pretty good definitions and policy in place and hey there's this thing called article 9b and our local aig plans and when we put that into place that is policy and that is something that we have to follow and it's not this extra thing that we can ignore like we gotta if we say we're gonna do it we gotta do it like we got some actual like legalese and policy in place that get to support our gifted students Definitely. Do you have an academically talented child who's looking for a challenging and exciting summer program? Summer Institute for the Gifted provides innovative academic programs for exceptional students from all over the world. Enroll now at some of the top universities in the country, including UNC Chapel Hill, for courses like robotics, creative writing, and neuroscience. These courses are designed to engage and inspire your child, allowing them to grow into the next best version of themselves. To learn more and enroll, visit our website at giftedstudy.org. We would love for you to talk a little bit about overexcitabilities when it comes to our gifted learners. Yeah. So overexcitabilities is, it comes from Kazimierz Dabrowski, who's a Polish psychologist, and hopefully I did not butcher his name. I don't think I did. <laughs> I'm not great with names sometimes. But Kazimierzowski, and it is uh, the thought that our gifted students are people of high abilities, right? They have these heightened physiological experiences, these heightened senses, like the, the overexcitabilities, right? It's in the name, these overexcitabilities, and there's five of them that he talks about for these overexcitabilities, psychomotor. So when we think about some of our gifted students, they might just be all over the place. They're just like, go. it's like, they are like driven like a motor. And they might have that, that heightened sense there that they're just constantly nonstop, right? There's the sensual piece, which we talk about overexcitabilities towards senses. So they might have a proclivity towards the finer things in life, like art and music, and they have this great awareness, or they might love these smells and sounds and feelings, these textures, but it also could be the opposite, right? They could be really bothered by them and triggered by these same things. The imaginational, this is one of my favorite ones for the overexcitabilities is because I think I was this kid where your mind is just always going, like creating these, you love the fantasy, you love the imaginational, you love 
don't know, I always, I always thought about like Harry Potter and like getting lost into those like fan, fantastical worlds. Sometimes though, the line of truth and uh, yeah, lies might blur a little bit. You might come up with some, some good stories for people to hear and then there might not be any truth to it because your imagination is just on overdrive. The intellectual, this is one that I think we talk a lot about in the gifted space as far as overexcitabilities, just constantly seeking information and seeking truth and justice in the world. And that's great until that can't be satisfied, right? <laughs> when you're in an environment or an educational fit that that's not fostered or it's not cared for and you're not able to go out of your way to find those answers and to really satisfy that intellectual curiosity. And then the emotional piece, which I guess is really linked well to this podcast episode is that, yeah, our students feel this, these great injustices and they feel emotions at this higher level and they're more sensitive to that potentially, right? And it might give them this incredible sense of awareness and empathy and ability to think about like how others are feeling. It also might have them where they blow up over these little things, right? These minor inconveniences that we might label, right? And so with the overexcitabilities, some of our students might experience them like all five. They might, it might be one or three. It might not look different than their non-gifted peers. Again, our students and they are going to have this different level of heightened awareness or heightened experiences. And it could be all of them. It could be none of them. It could be one or two of them. Right. But I think we talk a lot about these overexcitabilities for the emotional side and the intellectual side. And the fun thing about these overexcitabilities is that it can make the conversations about supporting students a little bit more difficult because then if you're not aware of overexcitabilities and how they link to gifted characteristics and development, it could be that that psychomotor overexcitability could be ADHD or the emotional might look more like anxiety and depression. And, and so the conversations just shift dramatically without that understanding of what could be a sign of giftedness and what could be that psychopathology and that potential disorder. It, could, it very well could be anxiety, ADHD, and overexcitabilities too, and signs of giftedness. So how do we support a student when it could be a little bit of everything, right? In those situations too. So. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> very is, interesting. Yeah. That's fast. I think overexcitabilities are so fascinating, but I feel like, I just feel like I, I had no idea about any of that. And I just think that's crazy. And I'm just thinking about all my students now. I'm just mm. looking at like the different kids that I have in my class who that might relate to. Yeah. And there's some conversation around whether or not they're real. Are these overexcitabilities a line of research worth pursuing? I think it definitely is worth pursuing, right? And it, whether, no matter where you stand on that camp, it still comes down to looking into the whole child and working with that child and recognizing their unique needs and not just putting this, okay, hey, look at these five overexcitabilities. That's our gifted kids. Or you have a checklist of traits of giftedness and so they have to have all these traits or they can't be gifted. It's really looking at that student and saying, okay, what do you need? Is it like, would, you know, if you're showing these intellectual or emotional overexcitabilities in class, um, how can we support you in the class? How can we support those needs? But then also not denying the fact that there could be, it could be ADHD. It could be anxiety. There could be depression somewhere in there. And because we don't want to necessarily deny services for a student if they need it, just because of Oh, sorry, just because of potential overexcitability. So in, in the class that I'm co-teaching, that's one of the things when we talk about it, it's like, yeah, it could lead to higher rates of ADHD diagnoses within the gifted population. 
but we're not here to make that decision. It's a multidisciplinary approach to tease those things out, to make sure students are getting what they need and getting the supports they need. And we're really being attuned to those individual student differences. I want to be respectful of your time, but I did want to ask this question. I was reading about this idea of a forced choice dilemma, Mm -hmm. and I'd never heard of that before. And I thought that was so interesting. So I didn't know if you could like explain that and maybe why it happens and what could be done to help. Yeah. So the forced choice dilemma is where intellectually gifted students or the students with those high intellectual abilities, they feel like there's this decision they're going to eventually have to make, which is do I show out for that high achievement? Do I live in this space of being a high achiever or this like with this student with a high intellectual ability? Or am I going to have to make that decision for peer acceptance? So it's, we think about this more with older students as they're getting into their teenage years. So into middle school and high school where being in a gifted program or being that student that is achieving at a high level, um, isn't as socially acceptable in some cases, right? And so students might think to themselves, these gifted students are like, man, if I continue in these programs and I keep showing out and showing my true abilities, am I going to be able to be accepted by my peer groups? And so it might lead to some masking of their abilities or hiding their abilities in favor of peer acceptance because they don't think they, with this forced choice dilemma, they think I can't have both, right? Because sometimes they do think that it's, not cool. It's not acceptable to be that high achiever. And so mm-hmm. that's that, that, honestly devastating really and heartbreaking it's for students. really sad. It's a lot on their shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. And if they don't have that environment where they can be accepted for who they are naturally and who those high, those abilities that they have, yeah, we might see them start to withdraw from some of the more challenging opportunities and might not achieve like they could in favor again of that peer acceptance. And some things we can do as educators and parents is making sure that we are fostering meaningful relationships with likability peers and having those likability interactions. So finding them some outlets where they can really achieve at the level that they can achieve at and show off their ability. So it might be summer programs. It might be like governor school for high schoolers, right? Where they can go to a campus and during essentially a summer camp for those students that are high achievers, finding folks that could be mentors for them and showing them the reason why one, you can have both, right? You can have a great peer group and achieve at the levels that you're, that you're at. So having some adults show them that both can be true, right? Showing them the importance of why achieving at the levels in which you can achieve and at your ability and that potential, why that's important for you. And also getting them hooked up with things that are uh, challenging for them, but also in their interest. So not all of our gifted students have the same interests, right? We're not, not every gifted student is going to like, Hey, I always want to do the spelling bee, or I'm going to be in math, math and science clubs, or obviously the mind that might not be what they want to do. It might be music. It might be art. It might be sports, right? But getting them involved where in, in experiences that challenge them, that help them grow as students. And in the same time, guess what? You can also find a great peer group there right? If you have, if you're in a space where everyone wants to be challenged and engage in higher level opportunities, like you're good, you can find your people there. So I think that we can just, we can do a better job. I think overall, just getting students connected with the right activities, the right opportunities and have those meaningful peer relationships. And we can talk about what a a true meaningful relationship looks like. I think that's important in the school level, right? As we're growing up, as we're going from the elementary age into middle school into high school, 
what does it look like to be a gifted student and what might your, what my peer relationships look like having honest conversations about that. But same thing from the home front too, just having open communication about what a healthy friendship looks like, right? Help healthy peer groups look like. So that way you don't feel like you have to make the choice between friends and high achievement friends and those goals that you have. Like that should never be something that a student feels like they have to make a decision between. In fact, they should be linked, right? <laughs> yeah. The idea of masking is just, that's so sad to think that a kid. And now I'm like, when I read about that and listening to you talk about it, it makes me wonder like what students have sat there in that and said, nope. I'm, I want friends. I mm-hmm. don't want to have to like, I don't know. I feel like they don't, yeah. you don't see the value of, yeah, but why would you want to like mask who you are and not be the person that, I don't know. I just, I love this idea of finding opportunities for them to have both. Yeah. And I think about it, I don't mind sharing personal stories growing up in gifted programming and honors, AP, all that, and like having really high goals as far as my personal goals. I was also an athlete, a musician, loved art and as a high school boy on a football team, on wrestling team, lacrosse, right? At the varsity level, not always the coolest thing to talk about taking AP courses or talking about the musical that I'm in through pit band, right? And being lead trumpet, right? Like first chair trumpet and, or I loved poetry growing up. Like I couldn't go to my football team and say, Hey, look at this poem I wrote about this situation. No. And so like that, you almost have to like, as a young male growing up, it's like, I felt like at times I had to compartmentalize the different parts of my life, the artistic, the athletic, the academic piece. I was fortunate that I found a group of friends that kind of spanned those same spaces with me. Right. And so we could talk about it and really we got each other. Yeah. It's hard living in these different worlds, but Hey, we at least can talk to each other. And it was a small group. (laughs) Like those groups don't, cross often, right? But it is important to be able to recognize that and have space for that. And fortunately, all of our parents were willing to make sure that we could stay as that group and have that friendship and connection. And they saw the value of that. Luckily had teachers that saw the value in that too. And when nonsense was happening, where one of us might got called out from one of our groups because of activities in the other group, right? Like where the sports called out the band geeks or whatever, <laughs> what have you. It's like, they would call that out pretty quickly. It's like, nah, we're not doing that. But not every kid has that that opportunity and that luxury. And I just, we just got to be aware that this and it looks different for a lot of our kids. And that's not just saying, and sorry, one thing I do have, and sorry, I'm a talker. <laughs> like I get on soapboxes a lot, but that could be the students that are backing away from those AP and honors classes, right? And that college track that we see a lot of our gifted kids on. But what if we know that this kid wants to go challenge themselves with some trade-based opportunities, right? And get certifications in trades because that's what they're interested in. They want to go be the best HVAC technician they can be or diesel mechanic. That's cool too. So we got to make sure that we're not saying just because they're gifted and they have all these crazy high abilities that they, that there's this one path for them, but really offering up, like, what are your interests? What do you want to go into? And because we do need gifted folks in those trades too. And those are going to be the people that are going to have some incredible companies and do great things for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, how can our listeners get in contact with you? Yeah, so I think they could get a hold of me through my NCAGT email. So that is crice at ncagt.org. So that's just rice like the food. Easy enough. Yeah, I can answer questions there. That's probably a space where it's not going to get buried in a thousand other emails throughout the day. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And so then the last thing we want to talk about, and I feel like we touched on this just a little bit, was the divide that the term gifted causes. 
Sometimes this term can lead to misconceptions and it can even prevent students from being identified because they don't check these preconceived boxes. Would you agree that the term gifted is problematic? And if so, would you rename it as something else? I don't think I would say that the term gifted is problematic. I think the understanding of gifted as service delivery is misunderstood and it's not valued as much as I think it should be. So the term gifted is good because it's, it can kind of gives us a marker of what we're talking about. It can be gifted academically, intellectually, creatively, whatever it might be. But man, we don't necessarily have that common understanding or language around what gifted services should be. When we see these states or districts or cities taking away gifted programming. I don't think it's about the gifted student or about the idea of gift. I think it's just based on their systems and how they serve students and, or better yet, how they don't serve students is right. It's about the barriers to the supports and educational resources that exist that I think is the issue. And so I think we really need to do a better job as educators, even in the gifted education community of explaining like, why is why is gifted education important? How can we do this in any school, in any school system? Also, we got to think about what does it mean to provide gifted services? And so one thing that we that I like is really thinking about it from like an advanced learning opportunity perspective, right? Because there's like this continuum of supports, right? Just because you're not gifted doesn't mean you don't need some sort of advanced learning opportunity. And that can be met. Those needs could be potentially met in the classroom, in that course setting. And just because you're gifted, you have that gifted identification label doesn't mean that your needs are going to be met the same way as every other gifted kid in your school. So it could be that you need pull-out services. It could mean that you need grade acceleration or single subject acceleration or maybe even a whole different school setting, right? And like a special school. So I think the concern around, at least for me, when I think about the that debate, whether gifted is bad or good, it's neither. It's a word. But gifted as a label, I think is fine. Right. I don't know how many, if there's a lot of people that have an issue with that, but it really comes down to what does the service service delivery look like or what doesn't look like? Is it gate kept? Is it something that like only the elite can access? Is it, are we thinking about it from an equity perspective and can we offer challenges to students and advanced learning opportunities to students that are not necessarily, they're not like officially labeled as gifted and how does that span into those students that are profoundly gifted? I think gifted is fine as a term. I think maybe gifted education could be renamed to like advanced learning. That's what our department, and I love that from our department at Wake County because it expands a bunch of students, whether they're labeled or not, whether they're profoundly gifted or not. It encompasses a whole range of services and supports for our students. We do need to think about was that common understanding of gifted and gifted education or advanced learning opportunities across the country, especially when we don't have a federal mandate, we don't have that consistent policy from state to state, county to county. So we need to get on the same page here. So that way gifted education can thrive and we can make sure that students have access to that rigorous, challenging opportunity in education that's going to help them grow individually. I love that answer. I That's my favorite question, I think, every time, because I feel like every time somebody like you would, you said something in there that I was like, huh, didn't think about it that way. I just love listening to the different responses we have on that question. Thank you so much, Chris. This has been a treat and definitely so fun. much good information. Yeah. Ho hopefully it wasn't too much of that soapbox moment. I do realize I 
didn't say this about just providing students like that social emotional support and then behavioral health is that one thing we got to think about is like, what resources do you have in school? What resources do you have in the community? You can have all these great strategies of building up your classroom environment and having open, honest communication and getting kids involved in their preferred activities and really supporting them from the school and family level. But sometimes our students do need support from professionals like mental health professionals. They need counseling. They need more intense services than just that. So I think that's really important to add in there as in the greater conversation is that we can't look at these students that are gifted and say, oh, they're gifted. They're going to figure it out because they're so smart. It's like they're still kids and they still have struggles and they don't exist in vacuums. And you can't say just because they're so smart that they're going to be able to figure out all of their mental health challenges or behavioral health challenges or the social emotional needs. Sometimes you're going to have to ramp up the support and it's going to look like counseling. It's going to look like medication potentially. It's going to look like an IEP because we have those twice exceptional students. I think that's a disservice a lot of gifted students are handed is that because they're so smart, because they have all these talents and these gifts that we forget that they're kids and that they are humans and that they have these needs and that sometimes they're not going to be able to figure it out and that we as adults then need to band together, find the experts and find those folks that can really advocate for them and get them the supports and services that they needed. Just relates right back to the name of our podcast. People think that they'll be fine Mm -hmm. and sometimes they won't. So they definitely need that professional help as well. Exactly. Yeah. Don't want to deny that just because they're smart. That seems silly. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And there you have it. Thank you for listening, and we really hope you enjoyed this episode of They'll Be Fine. We would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review. And if that feels like too much, we get it. Instead, just take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media. Every like and share counts and helps us to reach families and educators who are trying to navigate and advocate for the gifted loved ones in their lives. We'll see you in two weeks when we interview another amazing stakeholder in the gifted community.